If you would, please turn with me in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. If you grabbed one of the guest Bibles in the back, we'll be on page 927. Those, by the way, are our gift to you if you don't own a Bible or would like to take one to someone who doesn't own a Bible, or perhaps you just would like one in the translation uh, that we're preaching from. That's the New Living Translation. Uh, Those are a gift, so feel free to take one uh, or two if you need to uh, here this morning. We'll be on page 927. I'm going to read just a selection of verses uh, from the chapter. I'm not going to read the whole chapter here this morning. You see in your bulletin the the particular verses I'll be reading here in a moment. Throughout Lent, over these last number of weeks, we've been making our way through this book, looking at the, the wide array of problems that were troubling the church there in Corinth, the church that was known, uh, or, or a city, I should say, that was known far and wide for its depravity and its immorality that was just rampant there. And Paul has been hearing reports coming to him about what's going on in that region. And he says he can't believe the things that he's hearing, but he's not talking about the things he's hearing going on in the city. He's amazed at the things he's hearing that's going on in the church in that city. And the result is a letter that has been written not only to the church then, but really to the church of every age that finds itself struggling with being distinct from the culture that it finds itself in, a church that is struggling to to understand what it means to be a body together, the body of Christ. And so we come to this this chapter 15, this all-important chapter, where Paul talks about the bodily resurrection of Jesus. How fitting for Easter Sunday to be here in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. We're going to trace a line of thought that that exists here in this chapter, beginning in verse 1, and we'll uh, bounce around until we end there in verse 22. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 1, the apostle writes, Let me now remind you, dear brothers and sisters, of the good news I preached to you before. You welcomed it then, and you still stand firm in it today, presumably. It is this good news that saves you if you continue to believe the message I told you, unless, of course, you believed something that was never true in the first place. I passed on to you what was most important and what had been also passed on to me, Christ died for our sins, just as the scriptures said. He was buried and he was raised from the dead on the third day, just as the scriptures said. Verse 12, but tell me this, since we preach that Christ rose from the dead, why are some of you saying there will be no resurrection of the dead? For if there is no resurrection of the dead, then Christ has not been raised either. And if Christ has not been raised, then all our preaching is useless and your faith is is useless. Verse 20. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. He is the first of a great harvest of all who have died. So you see, just as death came into the world through a man, now the resurrection from the dead has begun through another man. Just as everyone dies because we all belong to Adam, everyone who belongs to Christ will be given new life. Now, for those of you who are regular attenders here, you might recall back in September, we were in 1 Corinthians 15, and we were, it was a, a different sermon series. It was, it was a sermon series that we were doing on the Bible, why we believe the Bible is true, why we trust what the Bible says, uh, the Bible's uh, proper role in our lives as, as, uh, as authoritative, and we were working through these different concepts and themes, and there was a sermon in that series called True, and where we, we turned to this passage and we talked about uh, a couple of the different emphases that of Paul here that we find in this chapter. And the first is the emphasis on the facts of the, re- the resurrection. The facts. 
In verses 1 through 11, Paul lays out his argument for the historicity of the bodily resurrection. That is, why we believe it's something that actually happened in space and in time at a point in time in history. And this was important for Paul to do in writing to the Corinthians because there was a question that had been percolating around the church there in Corinth. You can see it there in verse 12 where it says, Some of you are saying that there will be no resurrection of the dead. So that was a topic that was being debated among those within the church in Corinth. And Paul says, well, there will in fact be a resurrection of the dead. And we know this because there has already been a resurrection from the dead in history. And that is the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And so he, he proceeds to lay out in these first 11 verses the, his arguments for the evidence for the, the historicity of the resurrection. And we analyze those uh, those facts and, and consider the evidence together. And then in that sermon, we responded to some of the common objections that skeptics raise even to this day. And we concluded this, that it takes more faith to reject the historicity of the resurrection than it takes to accept it. We believe that what the Bible affirms is true. And that trusting God's word does not require one of these sort of, you know, close your eyes and take a, a jump leap of faith. That's, that's not how we view the scriptures. We believe that Paul gave them, and by extension us, the facts, and that they stand up to the harshest of scrutiny. And you as a Christian can be certain of that what you have in your, in your Bible is indeed true from cover to cover. But Paul doesn't just note the historical evidence or the, the, the facts or the details of the resurrection. He also argues for its centrality. And that was the second emphasis that we covered in that sermon back in September. And you can find this emphasis in verses 12 through 19. For Paul and for the early church and for Christians today and Christians of all the generations, the resurrection is not a matter of, of marginal significance. It's not one of those things that's sort of out on the edges. We have sort of our, our Christian faith, our doctrines, the things that, that sort of matter to us most. And then on the outside of that, somewhere on the periphery, you find our emphasis on the resurrection. No, Paul says the resurrection is a crux issue. In fact, it is the crux issue. It's the one upon which everything else hangs in the entire Christian enterprise. As Thomas Oden wrote in his systematic uh, theology uh, volume two, he says that Christ is alive remains the chief premise of Christian teaching. Lacking that premise, Christianity is easily turned into tedious moral obligations, pretentious sounding historical research, insufferably vague speculative philosophy, or desperate self-help psychology. That's what you get when you take away the historicity, and the centrality of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. As Paul concludes in verse 19 of our passage, of our chapter here, if our hope in Christ is only for this life, meaning if there's nothing beyond this life, if his resurrection didn't actually happen, if there's not a resurrection for us to anticipate for ourselves in the future, well, then we are to be more pitied than anyone else in all the world. And those words ring true to this day. But there's a third emphasis here. One that I want to take some, some time here this morning to explore ourselves, and that is the emphasis on the consequences of the resurrection. It's facts, it's centrality, but what are its consequences? Now, to begin to consider the consequences, we have to first consider the need for resurrection. And that's what we're going to spend some time here doing first. What is the need for resurrection? We discover that there in verse 21, where Paul shares with us a little bit of bad news. And I'm sorry that on your Easter Sunday... 
you have to listen to the pastor give you a little bit of bad news. But that's just the reality of the situation. We live in a broken world, and before there can be good news, there has to first be bad news. And the bad news is this. You see it in verse 21, where Paul writes, death came into the world through a man. Death came into the world through a man. Now, the Bible tells us that in the beginning, when God created, death was not a feature of his creation. It was not a part of it. It did not belong to it. It's not natural to his creation. Death was never the intention of God from the beginning. God is the author and source of all life. And his creation, he says, at its conclusion was very good. Death, instead, all through the scriptures, is always viewed as an enemy to be destroyed, It was never part of the very good of God's creation. It was instead introduced to God's very good creation as the result of the original sin of the first people that ever lived, Adam and Eve. You and I and everyone else who ever lived came from those two people. And as such, you and I and all of humanity share a solidarity with them. As Paul says in verse 22, we all belong to Adam. And what he means by that is you and I have all inherited from them a human nature that has been corrupted by the problem of sin. Indeed, Paul says in chapter 5, verse 12 of of the book uh, he wrote to the Romans, he says, when Adam sinned, sin entered the world. Adam's sin brought death, so death spread to everyone, for everyone sinned. So you see, sin is is a twofold problem. It's not just the, uh, the problem of things that we do. Sin is a problem with something that we are. Something is wrong with the human nature. And you don't need to look any farther, well, I was going to say, than you know, the people around you. I was, but really, you don't have to look any farther than the person to your right and to your left. You don't have to look any farther than in a mirror right in front of your face to see that there is a problem with the human nature. There's something corrupted about it. There's something inherently wrong. Now, that doesn't mean all people are the worst versions that they could possibly be of themselves. I'm not saying that. But what I'm saying is, fundamentally, there's something that is broken, in the nature of what it means to be a human being. And Paul, Paul identifies where it came from and what it is. Adam sinned, and by extension, we share solidarity with his nature, and therefore you and I have sinned. And the wages of sin, the scriptures say, is always death. Sin produces death. All the problems in Corinth... And that's what we've been looking at over all these six, seven weeks leading up to now. We've been looking at problem after problem after problem in this troubled church, in this immoral, depraved city. All the problems in Corinth, all the problems in our country, all the problems in our culture, all the problems in our homes, all the problems in our own lives, in our own hearts, every single problem that you and I see in the world comes back to the problem of sin. It is a problem at the level of our nature. Which means you and I don't need just basic reform. We don't need some sort of re-education. We don't need some sort of rehabilitation. You and I need resurrection. And Easter Sunday is where the bad news becomes the good news. Look again in verses 21 and 2. I only read part of it a second ago. I'm going to read the whole thing one, one more time. So you see, just as death came into the world through a man... Now the resurrection of the dead from the dead has begun through another man. Just as everyone dies because we all belong to Adam, everyone who belongs to Christ will be given new life. New life. 
You see Paul's parallelism there? He's he's tracing the the problem of the human nature to one man, but then he's tracing the solution to the problem to another man. In the same way that Adam was the progenitor of old humanity, Christ is the progenitor of a new humanity, and his resurrection marks the beginning of this new creation. And if Jesus is who the Bible says he is, this is the hope that you and I have and need in this broken world that we find ourselves in that is defined by corruption and death and decay and all sorts of problems everywhere without and everywhere within. This, this past week, I got an email from Carl Bowden, and uh, he's currently taking a, a course through our denomination. He's going through the course of study. He's on the path uh, towards becoming an elder in the EMC. You all voted back in the fall for him to continue this, so you you know all about it. You affirmed it, and we praise God for what uh, the Lord is doing in his life. And he sent me an email just to give me a little update on his progress and what the latest things he's thinking about and writing about in his class. And he told me about a uh, an assignment that was given to him by his professor, who, by the way, happens to be an old friend of mine from the seminary I attended. His name's John, John Phillips. And the essay was an essay that John and I had to write when we were in seminary. So John has taken the things he learned from Bill Urey, and he's sticking in his classes and making people in my church have to do them. So Carl, I'm sorry that you had to do that. No, I'm kidding. It's, it's a great assignment. The assignment is to write an essay on the relationship of the incarnation to the atonement. Now, that, those may be words that maybe aren't ones you use every day in your life, and that's fine. When we talk about the incarnation, we're talking about God becoming man. The second person of the Trinity, the Son of God, took on flesh. He was incarnated. Carne meaning flesh. He was incarnated, and that's what we celebrate, celebrate at Christmas. But what is the relationship of, of who he is to what he did on a cross to provide atonement, at one God and man are at odds with each other. We have been made at one through his work. What is the relationship to who he is to what he has done? That's the essence of the assignment. And I have to say, for me, in my years in seminary, that proved to be one of the most important essays and themes that I ever had to tackle. And by the way, you're welcome to read my essay if you're struggling to fall asleep at night and you're looking for some, some aid to your insomnia, I could promise you it'll put you to sleep. But it was important to me. This issue of the relationship of the incarnation to the atonement. That, how you understand that relationship means everything. And I would contend, not just in an essay for a seminary class, but from a pulpit and in any conversation I would have with anyone in the world, I would contend that apart from the incarnation, the cross means nothing. Apart from who Jesus is, what he came to do means exactly zilch. Because if Jesus is anything less than fully man, well, then humanity is not represented on a cross. Hebrews chapter 10, verses four through five, the writer says, it is impossible, it is not possible for the blood of bulls and goats, that is, creatures of a different nature than you and I. Only only a creature of the same nature as you and I can be represented in atonement. Therefore, it is not possible 
for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. That is why when Christ came into the world, he said to God, you did not want animal sacrifices or sin offerings, but you have given me a body to offer. You have made me the eternal son of God to have flesh and to take on the totality of the human nature. God became man. And if God did not become fully man, then a man did not die for you or for me. But if he is anything less than fully God, you see, that, see what's going on here. It's not just that he was fully man. The doctrine of the incarnation is that he was fully man and fully God. And if he is anything less than fully God, then our nature has not been touched by God himself. And the man hanging on the cross, yeah, he may be fully man, but he's no different than you and I. He's just another guy with the same corrupted nature, the same sinfulness, the same sinful orientation, the same self-focus, all the things that make you and I less than what God intended humanity to be, all the things that make the people what they are in the world, the, even the best version of themselves is worse than God's best version for us. All the things that make us that would define him as well if he's just another guy. If he's anything less than fully God, he's just as sinful, just as broken, just as corrupted as I am. But in Mary's womb, perfect God took hold of our broken, corrupted, depraved nature, and he joined it to himself. Isn't that amazing? And what happened? Those of, you, those of you with kids or teenagers, or maybe you're just young at heart, you may recall the, the book that became a movie, The Diary of a Wimpy Kid. Has anybody read the book or seen a movie? I'm just curious how many people in here are going to relate to what the illustration. About. Come on, put your hands up. Don't be embarrassed. Craig, I know it's your favorite movie. You can put your hand up. It's a story about sort of coming of age and for junior high kids and kind of all the things that happen in, in that age of life. You may, maybe you're having PTSD remembering your junior high years. I don't know. But throughout the, the movie, they kept focusing periodically on this little piece of cheese that had been left on the outdoor basketball court. Does anybody remember the cheese? And it progressively gets more and more disgusting as the movie progresses. Like there's all manner of things growing on it. It's so gross. And everyone's afraid to touch it because it's disgusting. And no one is going to bother to pick it up. So it just gets grosser and grosser and grosser. And, and what happens is if anyone happens to come in contact with the cheese, they have what is called the what? Do you remember? Cheese touch. Thank you, Eli. It's another way of saying you have become contaminated by that nasty, filthy, stinking, rotting cheese. And if you have the cheese touch, you pass it by touching someone else. And suddenly cheese touch can spread. And no one wants the cheese touch. So you become, if you have the cheese touch, you become exiled. And your, your peers, they don't want to sit next to you because you're defiled. My question for you is, in the incarnation, when God, holy, perfect, pure, undefiled God, when he takes hold of our cheese touch, what happens to him? Does it taint God? Does God get the cheese touch? 
Is God defiled by our disgustingness? No. Oh, quite the opposite. Quite the opposite. Instead of God being corrupted by us, our corruption begins to be healed. At the level of the nature, the nature of humanity is beginning to be restored in the womb of Mary. It's profound what God is doing in that moment. And on the cross, perfect God took upon himself the sins and the brokenness of all humanity and he bore the penalty and he took the judgment that was ours as one of us. God himself, who was his already beginning to heal and restore what is broken and what is corrupted, the things that we are, he then takes all the things that we have done and he becomes our sin. And he dies in our place and on our behalf. But then, in his resurrection, the God-man, we are told, became the first fruit of a great harvest that all who belong to him might belong to a new, redeemed, restored humanity. For as the Bible says, if anyone is in Christ, he is what? A new creation. For the old life is gone, the new life has come. I want you to take a moment and do a little mental exercise. Uh, This past Thursday night, we had a really great cantata. Thank you again, Pastor Jeff and worship uh, worship team, or I guess the choir, and um, the, everyone who participated, thank you for that. That was such a, it was a joyful, it was, had a somber note, because it was Good Friday. It's supposed to have a little, little bit of a somber note, but it was, it was more joyful than we tend to, we, we tend to uh, experience on Good Friday. Usually on Good Friday, we're doing a tenebrae service, which is a, a, a service where we progressively extinguish lights to the point that as we rehearse the passion of Jesus, when we get to his death, all the lights are extinguished, and we end the service in complete darkness. And there's a candle, which represents the life of Jesus, that is taken out of the chapel and presumably is put out. And then, of course, you remember on Easter Sunday, those of you who've been here past Easter's, we start the service on Easter Sunday with all the lights out. And a single candle comes up the center aisle and is placed on the altar table. And the light comes on to celebrate that Christ has come back from the dead. So we didn't have quite that same experience on Thursday. It was more joyful. It wasn't quite as focused on on the the reality of the death of Jesus. So what I want you to do is do a little mental exercise here for just a moment. And if it helps you to close your eyes, you can, but you don't have to do, to do that. But I want you to picture in your mind the cold, dark lifelessness of the grave of Jesus. Imagine a, a hole cut out of the side of a stone hill and a, a dead body, a corpse, placed in there, and then a giant stone rolled to to cover the opening and sealed shut so no one was going in or coming out. Well, that was the hope (laughs) that no one would come. I mean, there was no expectation for anyone coming out because people don't walk out of graves. That would make, you know, the, (laughs) that would make the the times that you go to your loved one's graves, to place flowers to remember them, quite a, 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 a kind of a Risky proposition, wouldn't it? If people regularly came out of their graves. It doesn't happen. 
So imagine yourself, or you don't have to imagine yourself there, but just imagine what that would have like. That dark, cold, lifeless space. No light, no warmth, no radiance of the sun, no sound. There's no gentle respiration coming from the body lying there, no, no breathing, no rustling, just the silence of a lifeless corpse. That grave is a picture of the condition of the human soul separated from God. Physical death points to the greater and even worse spiritual death. It is the deadness of which Paul speaks in Ephesians chapter 2 when he says, to people, by the way, who are still biologically alive, he says to them who are still, who are still alive, like you and I are, breathing air, eating food, taking naps, doing work, he says to them, before Christ, you were dead. You were dead. Dead in your sins, dead in your trespasses, alienated from the life of God. That's the picture of people, spiritually, who are separated from God. But as we're thinking about that grave, I want you to picture that first Easter Sunday morning. I wonder what it would have been like in there as that cold, lifeless body began to breathe. Where before there had been darkness and silence and death, suddenly there was life. In my notes, I spelled life with a capital L. And I bolded it and put an underline beneath it. Because the life that appeared in that place of darkness and coldness and death was life unlike anything that had ever happened before. Because what took place in the grave was not a reversal of death, it was a vanquishing of death. For Jesus was raised back to life never to die again. That's why we can come here on Easter and say he is risen. Not he was raised or he rose. Those things are true. But he is presently and forever in a state of risenness. Life with a capital L. And the promise in 1 Corinthians and throughout the Gospels and throughout the Scriptures is that if Jesus has been raised, then you and I will be too. And that right there is what we're calling the future consequence of Christ's bodily resurrection. And that, by the way, is a concept that radically departs from the philosophical worldview in which the Corinthians were brought up in. We talked about this a few weeks ago. That dualistic view of the person. You had the, the physical and you had the, the, the spiritual. You had the visible and the, and the invisible. The material and the immaterial. And those two things do not belong together. It is the goal of the soul to be liberated from the body. That is the, the Greek philosophical notion of dualism. And that's what the Corinthians were steeped in. And by the way, as I was reflecting on this again this week, 
it occurred to me that we, for all our progress, aren't that much different than they. If you think about it with me for a moment. This latest trend of viewing one's true self as something that is distinct from or independent of their biology Right, you have a, this, this sort of wave of people who are claiming that what they really are inside doesn't match what they physically are. And so there's this, there's this dichotomy. The, the human person is being split. And so you may be biologically a, one gender, but internally you're something, differently in, in, something different entirely. And that, by the way, is nothing but a rehashed dualism. That there's not a, a union of the the visible and the invisible, the material and the immaterial, the body and the soul, to, to make one whole person. I, what I truly am is not this. I'm something else. And if that's your worldview, if that's how you view yourself, well then your body and what you do with it and what you do to it is inconsequential. What does it matter? The goal is to be liberated from this physical thing that I am. So it doesn't matter what I do with it. It doesn't matter how I, how I destroy it. It doesn't matter how I change it or pretend it's something that it's not. It's nothing but rehashed dualism. And, and people would say it doesn't matter. And God would say, yes, it does. It absolutely matters. Because God created the whole person. You are a body, a soul, and a spirit. And the human person is the totality of all the three. And the Christian claim for the afterlife is not just of, of the immortality of, of the soul. It's not absorption into some sort of collective whole. Like we're just, there's a sort of like big ball, this big mass of somethingness. And, and I hope that when I die, I will become absorbed into it. It's not some sort of reincarnation into some sort of endless meaningful loop. I'm just going to come back and then come back again. It's sort of like a dog's life, a people version, whatever, the, how that works. That is not the Christian claim for the afterlife. No, the Christian claim, which is founded on the actual, literal, physical resurrection of Jesus Christ, the claim is for the actual, literal, physical resurrection of those who belong to him. Not just of the personality, not just of the soul, but the totality of a person that that has given new, glorious life. And if you are in Christ today, the promise is that you will be in Christ tomorrow and you will be like, like Christ tomorrow. His resurrection is the pattern. First fruits means the first of others like it to come. His resurrection is going to be our resurrection, which tells me that we will be eternally, gloriously enfleshed. Paul talks about that in the rest of the chapter, and you can go read it on your own with the Bible that you took from the church as a gift afterwards this morning. But here's here's the last part of what I want to talk about this morning. The consequences of the resurrection are not just things that reside in the future. They also reside in the present. There are present consequences. Romans 8, 11 says this, the spirit of God who raised Jesus from the dead lives in you. And just as God raised Christ Jesus from the dead, 
He will give life to your mortal bodies by this same spirit living within you. He's not talking about eternal life sometime down the road, that you will be given his spirit, that you'll, be, you'll have the life that, that raised Jesus from the dead, that Jesus has and is, sometime in, in the future. No, he's talking about right now in the present. All the, all the verbs in this part of, the, of Romans chapter 8 have to do with present reality. Just a few verses prior, you are not controlled by your sinful nature presently. Right now, if you're in Christ today, you're not controlled by your sinful nature. You're controlled by the Spirit because you have the Spirit of God living in you right now. That's not future power for godliness sometime down the road. That's today. And all that is to say this. We don't have to wait until the resurrection at the end of time to begin to experience the benefits of Christ's saving, healing, and empowering work You don't have to wait until the end of time to belong to Christ's new humanity. You can begin to experience that right now. But to experience it, it requires something radical to happen in your life. In the words of Jesus himself, you have to be born a second time. A second birth. Not by re-entering your mother's womb. That was the mistake that Nicodemus had. That's not possible, and it's kind of creepy to even talk about it. No, that's not the type of birth he's talking about. He's talking about a kind of birth that can only come by the same spirit who raised Jesus back to life. John chapter 3, verses 3 through 6. Jesus replied, I tell you the truth. Unless you are born again, you cannot see the kingdom of God. What do you mean, exclaimed Nicodemus? How can an old man go back into his mother's womb and be born again? Verse five, Jesus replied, I assure you, no one can enter the kingdom of God without being born of water and the spirit. Humans can reproduce only human life, but the Holy Spirit gives birth to spiritual life. And that's what we're seeing on mornings like today. That's what we're seeing in our kid our children's ministry, in our youth group, and in families from beginning of life to the end of life. We're seeing men and women and boys and girls coming to Christ, finding life in Christ, being born a second time, becoming part of the new humanity of which Christ is the progenitor. They're becoming united to him by faith, as Paul says in Colossians 2. You were dead because of your sins and because your sinful nature was not yet cut away, but then God made you alive with Christ. Death to life in new birth. And that verse, by the way, there in Colossians is in the context of baptism. Because Paul sees the union of the believer with Christ as being so complete and so real that in spiritual terms, those in Christ have already been raised today. It's not just a promise of future resurrection. Yes, there is that. There comes a time where what has already begun will be brought to completion. And, And the dead in Christ and the living in Christ will all receive new glorious bodies at the resurrection of the dead, absolutely. But Paul is talking about a a present reality for those who belong to him, those who've been buried with Christ in his death and raised with Christ to new life. That's why we can say those words because the union of the believer in the Lord is so complete and so real and has such a massive application and such 
humongous ramifications for your life that it's as if you have already died. In fact, you did die with him. And you've been brought back to life with him. God still uses his word in the prayers of his people, in the power of his spirit to bring people out of darkness and into the light. He still uses his word and the prayers of his people and the power of his spirit to liberate prisoners from dungeons, breaking their chains, setting them free. God is still in the business today of bringing the dead back to life. And the Corinthians needed to hear that one more time. In the midst of all of their problems, all of the things that divided them and gave the the name of Jesus a bad name and was a source of such tension and division and frustration, they needed to hear that one more time. And you and I do too. I don't know where every person here is in their faith journey, but whether you're a pretty good person with a little bit of sin or whether you're a really bad person with a whole lot of sin, the stark reality is that none of your efforts to earn the acceptance of a holy God can ever suffice. But Jesus, the Son of God and the Son of Mary, once and for all, in his atoning, redeeming, substitutionary death upon the cross bore the penalty of sin we deserve. He took the place that was ours. He took the pain that was ours. He took the punishment that was rightly ours. And he freely offers in exchange the life and the holiness and the righteousness that is rightly his. And because he lives, we may live and we will live with him and like him forever. My question for you is, do you believe this? Do you believe this? What is the hope for anyone, any person that is bound in sin and lost in darkness? Powerless to do anything about the condition they're in. What is the hope for someone struggling with addiction, struggling with an identity crisis, with brokenness all around and brokenness within? What is the hope for a person like that? What is the hope for a church rife with division and factions and immorality like the church in Corinth? What is the hope for a broken world doomed for destruction, a world in desperate need of repair, a world that is longing to be set right? And Paul will say in in Romans that all of creation is groaning. This broken world that we're in, what is the hope for it all? Well, it's the only hope that that there is the hope of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And I pray that that is your hope today. This past year, my Uncle Chris passed away after a a number of health complications. He suffered quite a bit in the end of his life. It was hard to to watch that happen. It was from a distance because he's in Ohio and we were here. But we watched from a distance and connected with my mom through all that. It was her middle brother of her two brothers. <clears throat> and Chris was always so kind to me. And he loved his family dearly. If I can say anything about Uncle Chris, he loved his family. There's no denying that. 
But as far as I or anyone else in my family could tell, he never responded to the offer of salvation in Christ. And it wasn't for lack of hearing it. He was raised to go to church. His siblings are Christians. His parents were Christians. The extended family, we're all, we're all believers. I mean, it wasn't just a few years ago I, I got to preach my, my grandmother's funeral, and I, I preached the gospel. He, he sat right there. I still can see him sitting in his wheelchair about 50 feet away, listening to every word. It wasn't for lack of hearing it. But as far as I could tell, Chris never responded to the offer of salvation in Christ. But that didn't stop us for, from praying for him. In fact, it motivated us to pray for him even more. In the night that he was dying, he was, we were told he was lying unconscious and unresponsive and we knew the end was near. My family and I in our little house in the fishbowl over here <laughs> were praying for him. And I'll never forget the words that my daughter prayed. She said, Even in this state, that is, of unconsciousness, of unresponsiveness, even in this state, enable him to come to you. And I thought, that's the prayer for any one of us at any point in life. Because apart from Christ, you and I are dead. And we lack the ability, we lack the power, we lack the motivation to move toward him on our own. We cannot do it. We need another kind of life, another kind of power that enables us to come to him. And Jesus has made that power possible. His resurrection and the giving of his spirit means that you and I can live. And the invitation for you this morning, if you've never done it before, is to say yes to that offer. Say, I know there's something wrong in me. I know I can't fix myself. I know that I'm broken and everything around me is broken and I don't know what the answer is. I know it's not rehabilitation. <laughs> I know it's not re-education. I'm telling you, it is resurrection. And if you want someone to, to pray with you and help you make that decision to go from death to life, well, that's why people like me are here. And as the worship team comes to close our Easter, Easter Sunday service on this Resurrection Sunday, there's an invitation to you to say yes to Jesus, to the life that he's offering, life that, begins, that can begin today but will never end Life that will last forever. Hope for a time when you will be eternally, gloriously enfleshed. A body that has been liberated from decay. A soul, spirit, has been forever cleansed and purified from defilement. A whole person with Christ, like Christ, forever. That can start right here. There's a place of prayer for you. If you want to come, come. Lord, thank you for the beauty of Easter Sunday, the flowers, the lights, the Easter dresses and ties. It's the most beautiful day of the year. 
But the real beauty is the beauty of your presence. The one who has vanquished death, who has transcended the grave, and who lives forevermore. Jesus, you are our risen, victorious, present Savior and Lord, and you are here in our midst, and you're offering your life to us. And all we have to do to receive it is not understand it all. It is not to have all the complexities and the nuance and the mysteries figured out. It is only up to us to believe. That is it. Lord, help us in our unbelief. Help us to say yes in faith this morning. In Christ's name, amen. The invitation is before you. You respond as the Lord leads. Pastor Jeff.